I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mailbag bonus pod. It's time. End of September. We told you all you have to do is get on Apple, rate and review Nothing Personal with David Sampson, five stars if you don't mind, and then write a review. And in the review, ask a question. At the end of every month, I will take some questions and answer them. I appreciate all of your loyalty. We are in the middle of Major League Baseball playoffs. But you know what? The mailbag bonus pod doesn't wait for anybody. Let's just start. So many questions this month. I chose a bunch of them, and we're getting going. Number one, if I had to ask a question, that's funny because you don't have to ask a question, but thank you for asking a question. If I had to ask a question, it would be how to simplify or even begin to enjoy the process of doing things professionally that scare you. I chose this question to lead off the show because it is the single most important part about your work life, your personal life. It's what do you do when you're uncomfortable? It's a different way to ask your question. How do you deal with the butterflies in your stomach, the uneasiness that you feel when you're asked to do something that you've never done, when you're asked to do something that you're not sure if you can do it well? when you're asked to do something and you know eyes are upon you. So let's go through a process here that I think can be helpful, and it's the process that I use. And let me start by telling you that I crave this feeling. There's two types of people in the world, people who are willing to be uncomfortable and people who aren't. And that discomfort can be manifest through skydiving if you're scared of heights, getting on an airplane if you're scared of flying, Getting in a pool if you're scared of swimming. Trying to do something in your job that's outside of your job description is a way to make a difference in your boss's eyes. The juice and the squeeze is the expression we use. Is the juice worth the squeeze? The squeeze is doing something and not doing it right. The juice is being looked at by your boss, by your family, by your friends, as being willing to try something different. And you started the question by saying, how do you enjoy the process of doing things that scare you? And I could sit here and tell you how to enjoy something, but that's going to be really up to you. You know yourself just as I know myself, and the process of learning about yourself is actually critical in this regard, because you can't teach yourself to enjoy the process of discomfort. You can teach yourself to tolerate it. You can teach yourself to accept it. You can teach yourself to search for it. But to teach yourself to enjoy something, that's a feeling. It's very difficult to teach feelings. 
It's like when you're arguing with someone and you say, I'm sorry you feel that way, or how could you feel that way? Well, people can't help how they feel. It's just how they feel. You can't practice to enjoy something. But the question is, can you enjoy something that you don't know whether or not you are good at it? That is something that you can learn. You can learn to accept the possibility of failure. Failure is a concept that every successful person has embraced. There are people when you say what has been the most important informing event in your life, and they'll mention failures. Some will mention successes. I always mention failures. The things that I've grown the most from have been all of my failures, and there have been plenty. And I admit all my failures. Admitting it is not a stage in dealing with it. It's just how you are in terms of your own ego. Can you admit? Can you be self-deprecating to the point where you acknowledge the fact that you aren't good at something, but you are going to work to become good at something if that can happen. So I don't set goals for things that I know are unattainable. I don't have a goal to dunk a basketball. I don't have a goal to throw 90 miles an hour, but I do have a goal to do things professionally that I've never done before. So for example, one summer, this story is, uh, I worked at a, a company called Revlon. I don't know if you remember Revlon. It's a cosmetics company. And I worked in the finance department as a summer intern. And I was pretty overwhelmed and intimidated, not just by the people who worked there who were smart and beautiful. Shocking at Revlon. Everyone who worked there was stunning. But they were also really, really smart. And I would read the Wall Street Journal every morning because I was in the finance department and I felt as though that was something you had to do. I didn't necessarily enjoy reading the Wall Street Journal, but I knew that was something that I had to get through. I had to get through articles. I had to be up to speed. I had to learn how to use Excel, which is a financial program. I don't know if it's still around, Mikey. Mikey's doing the show with me this morning, not Coca. I don't know if Excel is still a thing, but that is really, uh, it's, it's formulas. And I was keeping track of sales I was working on a brand called uh, Princess Marcella Borghese. I don't even know if that's still around. I was asked one day if I could take on a project of analyzing same store sales, looking at different department stores that were selling Princess Marcella Borghese and trying to evaluate where we were being successful and where we weren't and looking below the numbers and trying to come up with a plan, which was the goal because the goal of any project, any job, anything professionally is to make more money for your company, make money, more money for your boss. So I was trying to figure out how to improve sales and figure out how to redistribute our, reallocate our resources. And I remember doing the project very clearly. And when I'm uncomfortable and scared, I start sweating because my adrenaline is flowing and I'm a sweater anyway. But I remember that feeling when you don't know whether or not you're on the right track. You don't know whether or not what you're thinking is right. I was young at the time. And when you're young, by definition, you think that you can't do things, which of course is wrong. I love, 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 love uh, younger employees because they have an ability to do things differently and not realize they're different. The older we get, the more apt we are 
to do the same thing over and over again, even if it has not led to tremendous success. So I went through this project and I remember finishing it and submitting it to my boss. And he asked me to walk him through it. And I did. And I explained to him my thought process and I explained what I would do. And he looked at it, he read it, talked about it with me. And he looked at me and he said, David, that's a great job, but here's why it doesn't work. And he went through three or four reasons, uh, assumptions I had made that weren't true, three or four ways that from a cosmetics company standpoint, where they have to do certain amount of volume with certain amount of business. And if they don't hit that volume, then their margins actually are decreased because they lose shelf space. It's amazing how much shelf space matters and where your products are on a shelf and what goes into that. But I remember at that time being young and I was scared. I was scared because I thought that he was going to fire me because I'd gotten the project wrong. I hadn't been able to do what he wanted. And I remember saying something to him because I've always been very forward. I've always said, hey, listen, um, am I getting fired? Was I so wrong that my job's in jeopardy? And I was able to ask him the question and I was scared to ask him the question. I was scared to do the project and I just did it. And he said to me, David, I don't think you understand how it works here in the, in the real world because I was young and this was the real world. He said, I'm not asking you to be right. I'm asking you to have a solid foundation of decision-making processes. I'm asking you to think before you talk. I'm asking you to have a reason for believing the things you believe And I'm asking you to try to support them. And the last thing I'm asking, and this is a lesson I've taken with me forever, is that when you're wrong, I'm asking you to acknowledge you're wrong and be willing to pivot, redo your work in a way that could be right the next time. And that's a really cool lesson in my mind because it started me on the process of embracing everything that scared me. And when you ask a question about how to simplify it, everything is simple at the end of the day in the professional world. It's whether or not you've got the gumption to make an attempt to make a difference. And that goes for the professional world. It goes for the personal world. It goes for the political world. You ask me how to exactly simplify it, And I want to give you one minute on simplification. Have you ever been around people in the office and they say, oh, my God, I'm so busy. I can't deal with this. Don't ask me to do this. I've got 29 other things to do. Can't do it. And I've always explained that as a boss and a president, I always gave the busiest people the job to do because they were the ones who were getting the job done. Because busy people have a way to simplify things because they do something that I like to call compartmentalization. When you compartmentalize something, that means that you are solely focused on the task at hand to the exclusion of everything else going on in your life. You handle that task, you finish that task, and then you move on to the next task. That is what simplifies your professional life. When you don't feel like you've got 50 things to do, you act as though you have one thing to do. And if things scare you, do it again. And if it keeps scaring you, don't ever stop. The feeling of being scared is like fuel in my body. 
Thank you for that. Okay, next question. As someone looking to move up the ranks in the sports industry, where did you find the most success building relationships with executives and decision makers? Dinners, conventions, connections? Where did you get the most honest feedback and support from those key stakeholders? One of the most commonly asked questions of me is, is the only reason that you're successful because your stepfather bought the expos? And my answer is no, that's actually the reason I was given the opportunity to be successful, but it had nothing to do with me being successful. When you have the opportunity to do a job, that does not have any relationship to whether or not you do the job well. And I knew that to do a job well, I had to find a way to build relationships with people, knowing that there were two strikes against me. One, I was young, and two, it was a family business. And in the sports industry, if you look around at your teams, many of the teams are run by fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and mothers and sons and and mothers and daughters and cousins and uncles and aunts, and it is very often family. But I was always very cognizant of what it meant to build a successful career in sports. And it was critical to build relationships with key stakeholders, that sponsors, fans, other executives throughout baseball, and those in the commissioner's office. What I did is I carry with me, and this is old school, but I carry with me a black bag. And I've talked about the black bag in the show and the documents I keep in the black bag and how I use that black bag. It's not exactly the key to the nuclear codes, but in that black bag, I always had my action plan as it related to people for a day, for a month, and for a year. And what that means is that I kept a list of people who I needed to make sure would be there for me when I needed them. I needed to make sure the commissioner, when things were really critical, that he would take my call, that we could have a professional conversation where I could convince him and make him understand issues that we were having as a team. When there was a climate crisis in Florida, whether it's a hurricane, when there was a Castro crisis like there was with Ozzie Guillen, when there was any sort of PR issue, I had a list of people, influential people in the community, both Cuban, white, black, every possible color, every possible age. And I always knew that I did not want to only speak to these people when I needed something. Is there anything worse than getting a call from someone who you haven't heard from in years and they're only calling because they need something from you and they bury the lead. They pretend to ask you how you're doing, how your family's doing. You know they're calling because they want something. And you just say to yourself, what do you want? Just tell me. Well, I never wanted to be that guy. So I make sure that I contact people throughout the course of a year when I don't need anything. I'm a big birthday person. I will contact people on their birthday. Facebook's been a huge help for that, but from either a text or a phone call, and I decide whether I'm going to text someone or call them on their birthday, depending on the relationship, depending on how long it's been since I've been in contact. 
but I will always stay in touch with people on the birthday. Just say happy birthday. Hope you're well. I will always keep track of any meeting I've had with someone and what was discussed in that meeting. So for example, if I met with a real estate developer in Florida and there was a conversation about a project that was being worked on and then an article appears in the local paper about that project, I would read the article, send a quick email saying, I just read the article. Congratulations on the next step in your project. Hope you're doing well. Or when another owner would would win the World Series or get to the World Series or win the pennant in 2003, I got a phone call from John Henry after we beat the Cubs in game seven, congratulating us on making it to the World Series while he was in the middle of his own LCS. And I remember thinking to myself, that is a great phone call to make. I was appreciative of that. While we compete off the field and on the field, the reality is that being gracious matters. So I would call owners when they would win or when they would lose. And I would say, great season, good luck the rest of the way, things like that. The way I met people is I went to all sorts of any dinner I could go to, any restaurant, any sort of conference, industry conference. I would go to conferences in Colorado. I'd go to conferences in New York, anywhere I could find a conference in Miami. And I would meet people by going up to them and having a plan of action. Because when you're in a crowded room of people and there's someone you've identified who you want to meet and you don't know them, how do you make a difference? How many of you have given your resume or your business card to someone and never heard back? What I would do is I would have a conversation with someone where I would make sure that I had some reason to follow up. So if I met someone who was a high executive, let's say, at Burger King, here in Miami. I would talk about an experience I had at a Burger King, talk about one of the new items on the menu. I would get the business card. I would immediately write on the business card after meeting the person what we talked about. So when I got home, I had in my file what I needed to follow up on as it related exactly to that individual meeting. So I'd write down, we talked about the new Whopper. And then I'd let two weeks go by. I'd send an email saying, I don't know if you remember, we met at the following dinner and I just want to follow up and tell you, I have since had another one of the Whoppers. I hope sales are going well. We met, we talked about the real estate project you're doing. I see that construction has begun. Good luck. I hope it goes well. Any way to keep a touch point with someone and to do it, you've got to be organized and you've got to keep track and you've got to have the guts to just go talk to people because just showing up and going to a dinner, going up to someone at the end of a speech, how many people come up to me after I give speeches? Hey, I just want to tell you what a great speech. Here's my card. I have never once called any one of those people. Come up to me after a speech. Hi, my name is John. Here's what I do. I would love it if you could give me five minutes of your time. I would like to talk about blank. I would take note of that and I would keep the business card, but I would always wait for the follow-up. Do you know how many people actually do follow-up? Under 5%. The majority of people never follow up ever, which means you've got the built-in advantage over them if you just follow up and remember what the touch points are. Dare to be different. 
back in the day when business cards were a bigger deal. I always liked the business cards that were not the normal shape. I used to, I got a business card once that was a tiny card. There was a producer who wanted to do some sort of show with me. And the business card was in the shape of one of those, um, oh, Mikey, God, what is the name of the, uh, before a movie scene starts, they click it, click, like take one, click. I can't remember what that is, but the business card was like a click. And I remember that. Dare to be different. Now, let's talk about connections. People who don't have connections feel like they're at a disadvantage. They have no connections. How can they survive? The majority of people with connections don't thrive or succeed because they think that just having the connection is enough to succeed. Just having the connection is enough to have someone do something for you. But that's not how it works. When you've got a connection... You've got to massage that connection. You've got to dig in deep and find a way to make that connection personal. Because a connection can be, hey, I got your number from blank. I've heard that a million times. Hey, we have a friend in common. Oh, you went to Wisconsin. I did too. That's not a connection. Hey, I was introduced to you by blank. Is that a connection? Not necessarily. A connection You should think of not as how you get to someone through someone you know, but what you do with someone after you meet them, however you meet them. And you can meet people anywhere except your couch. Even in these times of COVID, you've got to get out. You've got to meet new people. You've got to be uncomfortable. Be in situations where you're not sure you belong, but look like you do. Act like you do. Feel free to go up to people who you never would have a chance to. And I don't mean going up to a celebrity and say, hey, can I get your autograph and get a selfie? I've had plenty of people come up and say, hey, can I just get a photo? Yes, you can. That's not a connection. I've had people say, hey, can I get a photo? Hey, listen, I'd love to get into sports. And then they walk away. What's that? On the other hand, I've had people say, hey, can I get a photo? Listen, I'd like to send you my resume. I have some very interesting thoughts on how I could be helpful to your organization. All right. I've taken note of that. I've given you a way to contact me, but you better follow up. But you also have to know that just because you follow up and don't hear back immediately or don't hear back ever, you do not take that as a permanent defeat. You take it as a momentary lapse in judgment by the person you're trying to reach and you try again. You don't try every day. You don't try every week. You keep reaching out with those touch points. In terms of the most honest feedback, it is very difficult to surround yourself with anything other than yes people. One of the key factors to my success and the key factors to the love of my career is that I love surrounding myself with people at least professionally, who would tell me when I was wrong, who would tell me when I had to do something, who would tell me when my plan was not working. It is only the most narcissistic person who surrounds himself with psychophants. And while everyone in business has a level of narcissism and a level of ego, it is only the secure people who are willing to surround themselves with people who will give honest feedback. How do you know when feedback is honest? It's very simple. If you have never heard that you've been wrong, if you have never heard that your approach has not been perfect, 
then you are not surrounding yourself with the best people. You want to know where I get the most honest feedback? It can be anywhere. It can be with family. It can be with friends. It can be with coworkers. It doesn't matter. What matters is what is being told to you. If everything is positive, then you are not growing in the least. Okay. Hey, David. Hey, how you doing? I've been a big fan of Nothing Personal since he came on Pat McAfee's show a few times throughout quarantine. I have a few questions for you and maybe it'd be something cool to address on the podcast. Well, seems cool. So I'm addressing it on the podcast. How can a young individual like myself, a second year college student, break through into the front office of sports, particularly baseball, more specifically the finance side? Are there initiatives you ran with the Marlins to bring young and enthusiastic people in to learn about the job? Do these even exist throughout MLB, throughout the rest of the sports world? Thanks for bringing me and many other listeners a great 45 minutes daily. Well, thanks for your question. And thanks for listening to Nothing Personal and catching me on whether it's Levitard or McAfee or wherever. I love being able to be out there and talk about issues. God, there are a lot to talk about. So you're a second year college student and you want to get into the front office. Well, that's pretty much like everybody who wants to get into sports. We did an entire show. I don't remember when it was, Mikey. Remember we did a segment in the show on how to get a job in sports? And I don't want to repeat that show. It's somewhere back in Nothing Personal in the episode archive if you subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. But wait, the reason I'm, I want to address this question is you said that specifically on the finance side is what interests you and whether or not the Marlins did anything to bring in young people. And the answer is yes. Look around and look for companies who have intern programs, even if they're unpaid. The Marlins did a paid intern program. We add up to 50 interns a year and we worked them hard. We paid them not well, but we gave them the opportunity to get an experience. And we did it in every single department, including finance. But if you're looking to break into the finance side, the first thing I would advise you is when you send a resume and cover letter and you're looking for a finance department job, do not put anywhere in the letter that you are a big fan of the sports team or you really want to work in sports. Write in your cover letter that what you want is to work in finance. So many people try to get jobs in sports by saying, hey, I want to work for the team. I've been a huge fan of your team forever. I love sports. I love the team. I don't care about that. If you want to be in sales, I want you to tell me why you're good at sales and why you're going to make money for me and for you. If you want to be someone in marketing, tell me about some ideas you have to market a product, whether it's a baseball team or a floor fan. How will you market that? You want to be in finance? Tell me about your financial experience. Tell me about the computer programs you know. Tell me about the fact that you're willing to work your ass off and that you don't care that it's a baseball team, that you want to help the finance department so the finance department can make sure the baseball department can do its job so the team can be successful on the field while I'm assisting it in its success off the field. The first touch point you have with sports teams, and you've got to apply to all of them. You've got to be willing to move anywhere in the country, any sport. Whether you like baseball, you apply to every sport everywhere. 
And you've got to make sure that your resume gets looked at, meaning it's got to be perfect, as we've talked about in previous shows, and you've got to have a hook in there. A hook is something that a resume reader looks at and immediately puts it in the consideration pile versus the refuse pile. And the majority of your resumes go in the refuse pile. They never get a second look because there was not an immediate hook. And I don't mean by putting something in huge font or in bold. I mean having something in there in the objective part of your resume that makes it clear that you are not a jock sniffer. There are internship programs throughout MLB. All you have to do is go on the website of every team, go under job opportunities during this time of COVID. It is definitely more complicated. There are definitely fewer jobs. Mark Cuban gave a great speech a couple months ago, I think, where he said, during these times of COVID, my advice to you is you take any job, even if it is not in your field of interest, because you never know where that can lead. That has never been more true when you're trying to get in the sports industry. You take a job in any city for any team, anywhere, doing anything, no matter what. And when you get there, you do that job plus three others better than anyone sitting next to you. You go and do the research. Everything is available. Back in my day, there was no inter-Google. I had to write letters blindly to companies. I had to try to find out through any means possible whether or not there were programs, where there were job listings. Now it's all online. You can find out any number of teams and what programs they have. Don't write a cover letter asking whether or not there's a program. Write a cover letter saying, I know you've got this program and I'm a perfect fit for the following three reasons. I want to be in the finance department as an intern with your team. Don't do copy and paste on your cover letters because I've gotten so many where the following was said. It is my dream to work with the Cleveland Indians. They forgot to switch it to the Miami Marlins or Florida Marlins. Make sure that you are taking the time because you're asking someone else to take the time for you. That means you've got to take the time for them. Don't make mistakes. There are jobs in every corner of the sports world. But if you can't get into the sports world and you want to be in sports, then start outside the sports world. Get experience in any kind of company, even a corner grocery store, doing anything in the finance department. Because what we look for when we're hiring are go-getters. And that sounds like a word. Oh, I'm a go-getter. What does that mean? You know what it means. Have self-actualization. Look at yourself in the mirror and decide, are you that person? Are you the person who does more than's asked? Are you the person who is not afraid to be wrong? Are you the person who's willing to do things that scare you? Are you the person who's willing to follow up and be comfortable speaking to your boss and your boss's boss? Are you the person who works well with those around you, even though those around you don't do anything? They don't work. They just play all day. What kind of person will you be and then be that person? Great line from a movie. Be the person you want to become. How many times do you find yourself saying, God, I wish I were blank. I wish I had blank. I wish I could do blank. Don't be that person. Be the one who does it. When we come back, we're going to have some more questions. 
Some more interesting questions on the Nothing Personal September 2020 Mailbag Bonus Pod. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back to the September 2020 Mailbag Bonus Pod. It's when you come in and ask questions by rating and reviewing on Apple. If you don't have Apple and you want to get a question into the end of month mailbag, you can go into my Twitter at uh, David P. Sampson. You can ask it on Instagram at David P. Sampson. Obviously, the preference would be through Apple. And I don't know why, because Mikey and Debo and Coca and other people, EK at CBS, told me that that matters. So therefore, it matters. So please do me that favor. Apple, rate, review, Ask a question. Okay. Empty football stadiums are reminding me of when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers gave away tickets to season ticket holders because their attendance was so bad. Did you guys ever consider this as Marlins owners? If not for that reason, did you ever consider giving tickets away for any other reason? Like to generate ballpark merchandise sales, generate team excitement, especially given the taxpayers paid for the stadium. Hmm. Great question. Okay. Let me explain. By the way, Mikey, I just saw Clapperboard. Thank you. The Clapperboard is what we talked about earlier in the show. The business card that was a Clapperboard. Thanks, Mikey. I didn't see that. Okay. Let's talk about giving away tickets. I ran a team for 18 years. Did it both ways. Gave away tickets. Didn't give away tickets. What's the pro? What's the con? When you are looking at your revenue, there's something called average ticket price. Then there's something called per cap spending. What the per cap spending is for every person who walks into your ballpark, how many dollars will that person spend? That's made up of the price of the ticket and then anything else that the person does during the course of the game prior to leaving. Parking. Buying a shirt or a hat, buying a hot dog, buying a program, buying peanuts. Anything that costs money. You add up all the money that the person spends, and that is the per cap for that person. So if you go to a game and you spend $10 on a ticket, you buy a shirt for $10, you buy a hot dog and a beer for $10. You are one person, your per cap was $30, 10 plus 10 plus 10. The person next to you paid $50 for a ticket, brought in his own food, didn't buy a thing. That person's per cap is 50. We have two people in attendance, save your joke here. One person spent 50, one person spent 30. Your average per cap is $40. Per cap is the most important metric because that is how 
you build revenue. So let's pretend you give away a thousand tickets for no money. I need a thousand people to buy $20 tickets to have an average ticket price of $10. In baseball, you want an average ticket price of $25. So if you give away a thousand tickets at zero, then you've got to get a thousand people to pay $50 a ticket. And then you're only even because you're at $25. But that's okay, you say, because I'm not counting merch sales. I'm not counting food, beverage, parking. I thought that it would be smart to give away tickets to get people in the ballpark. And then I realized over studying it, because you can't study it over a game or a week or a series. You have to study it over a full season, if not two I learned that people who get free tickets do not spend money on anything else. Obviously, these are general comments. On average, someone who comes into a ballpark with a free ticket is not going to spend money. They're going to bring their own food. They're going to wear a hat they already owned, and they will leave your ballpark having not spent a dollar. That is of no use to me. While you asked, does that generate team excitement? My answer is team excitement is generated by winning. Winning is generated by making smart decisions and having the ability to have an average payroll. The ability to have an average payroll is generated by the amount of revenue you get. And the revenue you get is from your fans and from your partners, corporate and TV. There was a team here, the Florida Panthers, back in the day. Their philosophy was to give everything away. They gave tickets away left and right. They did corporate sponsorship deals at way below market rate. They would do a deal with an an airplane company, and they would say, hey, we've got a huge new sponsor. They're everywhere. But guess what? The amount of money they spent on that deal was pittance. And I never wanted to let any corporate sponsor pay less than what I thought a value was for a sign or a commercial because I knew that word would get around and a corporate sponsor would then say to me, why would I pay market rate when you're giving away something to another company for less? It's the same with tickets. On airplanes, you don't think about it. In hotels, you don't think about it. You don't look at the person next to you in seat 42A, hey, how much was your plane ticket? On airplanes, you don't look at someone in hotels when people are checking in. Do you eavesdrop and say, hey, what was your rate? You don't think like that. But in baseball and in sports, people do think that way. When you're sitting in the second row, you're looking to your right and you're saying, I wonder if that person had to pay the premium I had to pay on StubHub. I wonder if that person got it from a season ticket holder. Are they an 81 game plan holder? Did they get a discount for being an 81 game planner, an 81 game ticket holder? There is much more talk in the sports world about cost of entry. And I thought that it wouldn't matter. And it turns out I was wrong because word gets around really quickly when there are thousands of people in your ballpark who didn't pay anything because the people who did pay get annoyed they had to pay. And season tickets are the lifeblood of your organization. And if you have season ticket holders who then realize that you're giving away free tickets throughout the year 
in seats that are just as good as theirs. What incentive do they have to buy season tickets the next time? They don't. They'll just hang out and wait for the free tickets. It is a slippery slope to giving away tickets. It's a a slide slope that it's a hill that I slid down many a time and made a decision that it was far better to make up attendance than it was to give tickets away to get that attendance. That's an inside joke for those of you who are nothing personal loyal fans. You know that we used to make up our attendance, that we were willing to generate team excitement by saying there were 25,000 people in the ballpark, even though there were only 10. We could eliminate finishing last in attendance, though it was hard to do that. We could make it seem cool to corporate sponsors and others. Wow, they had 25,000 people. Didn't look like it, but I guess they did. And that did not in any way sacrifice or make people uncomfortable for having to buy tickets. That doesn't mean we didn't do things for charity. That's different. Underprivileged, that's different. Discounts for kids, senior citizens, people in the military. Discounts are different than giving away a ticket for free. When you give away your product for free, you can pretend to yourself that it's a lost leader or you can realize that you are diluting your product to the point that it may be very difficult to ever recover from. I would argue the Panthers are still recovering from what they did. And I would argue the Marlins are still recovering from some of the moves we did in terms of giving tickets away when we did, even though we stopped that practice. I appreciate that question. Okay, you know I'm a big list guy. We've done the top 100 movies on the show. Go back and listen to previous mailbag episodes. I've released my top 100. I think I did the top 10 TV shows. Last question. Haven't always been your biggest fan, but have always admired your intelligence and candor on ethics. The reason I included that in the question, because I'm fine. It's okay that people are not my biggest fan. I don't need all of you on nothing personal to agree with everything I say or my point of view. Not at all. I just want you to be educated and I want you to have the ability to take information and then make your own decisions. The question this person asked, I'd love to know a Samson top 10 must read list. I might be the only one, but if you got the time, I'd love to know. Well, I decided to make my list of top 10 all-time books. It is not easy to come up with a list of top 10 books. I love reading. I do not read as much as I used to. I admit it. I read so many articles in order to prepare for nothing personal. I'm watching movies and TV shows to prepare for the review part of nothing personal. My eyes have gotten worse, so I don't necessarily love wearing reading glasses, which I'm putting on right now to read. Wow. I can see the documents so much better, Mikey, if I wore my reading glasses. That's so funny. So here it is. I love children's books. I love adult books. My top 10 list. The number 10 greatest book I ever read is by Shel Silverstein. It's called The Giving Tree. The Giving Tree is about a tree that gives everything to the boy who seeks its shade. It gives shade. It gives cover. It gives leaves. It gives branches. At the end of the book, there's nothing but a stump. The tree is not a tree anymore. 
but the stump is used for the little boy to sit on. It's called The Giving Tree, and there are tremendous lessons in that book. If you can check it out, please do. The Giving Tree is my number 10 book all time. Number nine, one of my favorite authors, he's a Brooklyn-based author. His name is Paul Oster. He has written so many great books. New York Trilogy, Leviathan. He has a style that is unique. It is riveting. One of his books was made into a movie called The Music of Chance. Music of Chance is a far better book than it is a movie, but I love the movie. I'd love for you to get into Paul Oster by trying one of his books, any one of his books. Huge baseball fan, by the way. Interesting, fascinating man. Paul, last name Oster. Number eight. I had to read this as a student. You know from the show that Je parle un petit peu de français. I had a business that was in Paris. I worked in Montreal. I love French. There's a book called The Little Prince, Le Petit Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It's in English and it's in French. I don't want to say anything more about the book. It's not a long book. But if you have an interest in learning something fascinating, read The Little Princess. The Little Prince. I don't know why I call The Little Princess. That's funny. Number seven, you knew I'd have Dr. Seuss on my list. Dr. Seuss is a author that people call him a children's author. He's not. He's an adult author and a children's author. There are messages in every one of his books. His best book is called, Oh, the Places You'll Go. It is a book about motivation. It's a book about making kids and adults realize that they can achieve anything, but you have to get off the couch and try. You've got an opportunity in front of you every single day. With every sunrise comes a new moment. It's called, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Incredibly motivating, a great graduation gift, a great gift to give to anyone who just needs a little to get them going. My sixth favorite book is by Christopher McDougall. It's called Born to Run. You know I love running. You know I do all these crazy races. Born to Run is a book that had me riveted from page one. It is about a runner and how he runs, why he runs, the story of his running. It is scary, but not horror. It's fascinating. It's interesting. It's called Born to Run, not the Springsteen song, Born to Run. Christopher McDougall. Number five, Steve Martin, one of my favorite actors, is also an author. If you didn't know that, you should. It's called The Pleasure of My Company. Steve Martin, The Pleasure of My Company. It's an easy read, but my number five favorite book. When I went on Survivor, part of Survivor, before the game, you spend time getting a physical, you spend time doing media, you spend time preparing for the game on the island, and there's a lot of silence and a lot of time on your own. I read a book by Kurt Vonnegut before I started filming Survivor 28, and it was called Time Quake. I couldn't explain to you what it's about. Kurt Vonnegut is one of those writers that I was told I should read a book by Kurt Vonnegut. I was always scared to read it because I didn't think I'd like it. I didn't think I'd understand it. And as I read Time Quake, I associate that with a great time in my life being on Survivor. But I also associate it with reading a book that was so clever in terms of how you manipulate time. So confusing that I was scared reading the book that I was so 
lacking intelligence, lacking literary intelligence. But it turns out it's just a phenomenal book that I never forgot. Time Quake by Kurt Vonnegut. Number three by Jan Martell is called Life of Pi. Yes, it was a movie. Read the book. The book Life of Pi. Is it a lion? Is it a person? What's going on in the middle of the water? What happens when the brain plays tricks on itself? Is this an allegory? Is the entire book a metaphor? It's called Life of Pi by Jan Martell. My second favorite book is another children's book that really has adult messages by Maurice Sendak. My favorite character in any book is Max. Max was a little boy who made mischief of one kind or another. He went off because he got in trouble. His mom sent him to his room and he pretended his room became a jungle and he became king of the jungle. He went to become king of the jungle. He ended up missing his mom. He came home and you know what? At the end of the day, dinner was waiting for him and it was still hot. Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak should be read to your kids, should be read to your friends, should be read to yourself. A wonderful book. And my number one book is by John Kennedy Toole, an author who achieved zero fame during his life, an author whose book that is my number one book became popular after he took his own life. It's called The Confederacy of Dunces. A Confederacy of Dunces. It's not about the Confederacy. It's a book about how people manage to survive in this world and how people examine what goes on in this world and then how they relate to it and how they adjust to it and the reality of it. And it fits every part of me, which is tolerance, whether it's racial tolerance, religious tolerance, height tolerance, personality tolerance, athletic prowess tolerance. Tolerance is the most critical attribute to have. Not everyone's going to be as smart as you, as good looking as you, as short as you, as tall as you. Not everyone will be as successful as you. Not everyone will be as unsuccessful as you. How do you tolerate people in your life, personally and professionally? That's a thread that you are going to have to manage your entire career, your entire existence, how you deal with people, your frustration tolerance. The book is called Confederacy of Dunces, and it is the number one book, a top 10 must read. I appreciate all of your questions. I've enjoyed this September 2020 mailbag bonus pod. Guess what the end of October will bring in addition to a World Series champion? It will bring the next mailbag bonus pod. Because remember, sometimes it can be business. Sometimes it can be personal. But at the end of every month, I'm going to answer your questions either way. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.